Then the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew, for the first time, that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths for themselves. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is where it all really starts. Sure, Genesis 1, we've got the creation of the world in six days and how God rested on the seventh day. But here, in Genesis 2, this is where the story gets good. This is where the story gets nice and juicy. The story of Adam and Eve, our first parents. This is perhaps the greatest of stories until the arrival of Jesus on the scene. What we discover here in the story of Adam and Eve, it is inexhaustible. It can never be fully mined. You cannot explain it away. So much, if not all, of who we are is founded upon what happens to these two in their mid-afternoon fruit snack. Today, we re-enter the strange new world of the Bible and we learn how the created order became disorder. The garden is called paradise. In just a few short verses, paradise is lost. Of course, when we hear the word paradise, we conjure up in our minds all sorts of images, all sorts of ideas that don't have anything to do with Eden. It's not crystal clear beaches with white sand and palm trees and drinks with ice that never melt. It's paradise simply because it was a perfect communion between God and God's creation, which, if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't sound a whole lot like paradise. We can't even fathom how communal the communion is because it sounds a little wrong. If it sounds wrong, it's because we don't really like the idea of anyone getting too close to us, let alone God. We know what we're like behind closed doors. We know what's in our internet search history. We know our knee-jerk reactions. We know how quick we are to judge, how untrusting we can be. And frankly, we'd like to keep God out of all that. Thank you very much. God's fine for you to tell me what you want to tell me on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, I just want to kind of live my own life. Thanks. Whatever paradise might have been for Adam and Eve, whatever this new community called Perfect Communion looked like, it definitely wasn't like the world today. It wasn't like the world today. Nations reeling from the threats of the coronavirus, what it means for the so-called global community. Children relying on free lunches at school during the week because they don't have any food to eat at home on Saturday and Sunday. Individuals seeking solace in the digital community because meeting people in the real world has become too difficult or too frightening. Speaking of coronavirus, there was a study done this last week that they showed that 38% of Americans have said they will not drink corona beer for fear of contracting the coronavirus. of Americans, as if a beer made in Mexico has anything to do with a virus that started in China. 38% of Americans have said we will not drink Corona for fear of contracting the coronavirus. Whatever paradise looked like is gone. Long, long gone. But it was paradise for them. Paradise for Adam and Eve. There's only one Rule. Can you imagine? Just for a second. You can do whatever you want. You don't need anything. You've got food. 
You've got shelter. You've got companionship. You have everything you could ever possibly want or need or desire. There's only one little rule. That's called generosity. God has given you everything. Absolutely everything. There's just one teeny tiny exception. And that teeny tiny exception, ooh, if we can't have it all, it's not good enough. So imagine like this. You're a kid. You're a kid and you're spending the afternoon at your grandmother's house. And your grandmother, she loves you. And the weather outside is absolutely perfect. She bought you a new playground. You've got all these new toys. You're having a great time. She even has a pitcher of lemonade waiting for you on the porch. You can do anything you want, she says. All of this is yours. Except there's one little rule. You can't leave the yard. You can't leave the yard. This sounds pretty good. Playground, toys, lemonade, blue skies, loving grandma. Sounds great. Until the next door neighbor puts his little face through those wooden slats and says, Crystal, hey, are you having fun at your grandma's house? Hey, Chuck, it's good to see you. Look at all those toys you have over there. Wow. Bunny, you having a good time at your grandma's? I've got some toys over here, too. Why don't you, why don't you come over here and play with me? We'll have a great time. Dave, I won't even tell your grandma. How about that? Come over. Have fun with me on my side of the fence. There's only one rule. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't leave the yard. But then the snake shows up. That crafty little next door neighbor puts his head through the slats. Did God really tell you not to eat from that tree? Did your grandmother really tell you you couldn't come play with me? God wants you to be able to eat. Just take a little bite. Your grandmother wants you to have fun while you're a visitor. Come over here. Have fun with me. The seeds of doubt are planted. You've already tasted all the fruit. It's all pretty good, but you just didn't get to taste that one. You've been playing with toys for 30 minutes. And even though the toys on the other side of the fence look exactly the same as the toys you have, you just, oh, I just want to go over there so bad. I just want to go play on those toys. And before you know it, you have scaled the fence and you are face down in the sandbox and you've got fruit dripping out of the corners of your mouth. And Adam, your very best friend in all the world, he's right with you. Sand all over his face, fruit dripping from the corners of his mouth, and it has all come to an end. Your eyes are opened. That's the way scripture puts it. The effects of our first parent's choice is instantaneous. They now know what they didn't know. There's no going back to what life was like before. They've had a taste of the other side of the fence. And what do they do with this new knowledge? Are they puffed up and feeling invincible? Are they ready to take on the world? No, they are ashamed. They are embarrassed. And they're afraid. They see themselves as they've never seen themselves before. And they can't stand the sight at all. They fashion together some fig leaves for themselves. They go hide under the cover of the sandbox because they know God is coming. They know Grandma wants to know where they are. This is the root of all sin. The sin then, the sin now. We want to be God. We want to determine our own limits. 
We want to be in control of ourselves and other people. We want to be able to do everything we want. And whenever we catch a glimpse of this true self, our real selves in the mirror, when we recognize all we want and all that we should not or cannot have, we start to hide ourselves in shame. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mean, that could be the end of the sermon right there. That could be it. And when we know how bad we are, we hide ourselves in shame. Because the scripture I read for you, that's where it ends. That's it. Their eyes are opened, they're ashamed, and they make for themselves new clothes. That's it. That's the end of the story. That's where scripture stops. But of course, that's not the end, friends. That is truly only the beginning. And it only goes uphill from here. Uphill because it gets harder and harder and worse and worse. In the garden, they made their choice. They begin to see. And they decide that now that they see, the best thing they should do is hide. Hide from each other. Hide from themselves. Hide from the Lord. Prior to this choice, that would be inconceivable. They had everything they wanted. They had nothing to be ashamed of. But now they know they've broken the rule. They know their grandmother is going to be disappointed in them. And this, for better and much worse, is exactly who we are. We are all stuck in the bushes. We are hiding in our own self-knowledge, hoping that God won't find us and see ourselves as we know ourselves to be. This is where everything went wrong. It is the division between all that is good, namely God, and all that is bad, namely us. We're rebellious. We're disobedient. We're idolatrous. We're selfish. We're self-righteous. And it is precisely at this moment in the story, as we see Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, that we often let the story run off in one of two directions. So I hope you've noticed so far that nearly everything I've said in this sermon is all about us. It's all about our choices, our mistakes, our futility. I haven't really said anything at all about God. You know, this text, usually for the worst, is used in one of two ways. In the first way, we are told that we're bad and how badly we need to feel about how bad we are. And we leave church wallowing in our own self-pity, feeling more exhausted than we did on our way in. We feel bad of all of our sins in the past, all of our sins in the present, and we even feel bad about the sins we haven't even thought of yet. That's one. The other option is we're told about how the people outside the walls of the church, how bad all of them are. And how it's our job to go out there to remind them how bad they are, drag them into church so they can feel just as bad as we feel about how bad we are together. And there are, of course, times that we should feel bad about our badness. There are things we have done that we should feel bad about simply because they are bad. But if that is the end of the story, then we cannot call it good news. Because for as much as we want to believe that it's all up to us or that the church exists to fix broken people or to go outside and tell people they're broken so that we can start to fix them, that we have to go searching for God, that we have to save ourselves, that is not the story of the Bible at all. The story of the Bible is that God is the one who comes to us, that God comes to be and dwell and find us, to repair us to raise us from dead, 
Notice, it wasn't in the scripture I read, but the very first thing God does after this choice, after they fashion for themselves the loincloths, after they're hiding underneath the cover of the sandbox, the very first thing God does, he doesn't hurl down a lightning bolt. He doesn't get a tornado out of anger and wipe them off the face of the earth. No, God goes into the garden. Your grandmother walks into the backyard. She says, Crystal, Deirdre, Nathaniel, where are you? God comes looking for us. It's the first thing God does. God comes to find the lost. And I don't know why, but for some strange reason, we keep willing ourselves to believe that we are the ones who have to find ourselves. That we are the ones who have to get back to Eden. That it's up to us as if we were capable of doing so. And we do this all the time. We've done all sorts of crazy things in the attempts of making our life feel more like paradise, whatever we think that is. We look at things that are wrong or broken or bad in the world and we say, ah, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make the world better. So we look at something terrible like slavery. Ah, so all this is bad. We shouldn't do this. Let's get rid of it. So we get rid of slavery. But you know what we did instead? We incarcerated the highest percentage of people per capita of any advanced nation in the world. We got rid of slavery, but now we just put them all in prison. So we say, oh, okay, fix that. People aren't free enough. We want to give everybody freedom. We want to give everybody freedom. So you know what we do? We say, hey, if you're in this country, you're free. But you know what we got? Greater wealth and equality than any other advanced nation in the world. You're so free that you don't have to care about anybody else. And no one has to care about you. We got freedom. But the world looks like the way it does. Fixed it. Okay, people are too sick. We want to advance medicine. We want to make more drugs, make people more healthy. We're going to fix everybody. We're going to make sure people can live as long as they want. You know what I read last week? The average American lifespan has diminished for the first time in decades. You know why? The opioid epidemic. For the first time in decades, the average lifespan of an American has shrunk because so many people are dying because of opioid addiction. Which is another way of saying that great swaths of people in our country would rather commit slow suicide than have to live with people like us. We're going to fix it. We're going to make life paradise. Let's get back to Eden. Whenever we read this story from Genesis, in the very beginning of the Bible, we forget that it's the beginning of the Bible. We forget, we somehow miss that the whole rest of the story is about how God refuses to abandon us even after we fail to listen over and over and over again. God doesn't give up on his grandchildren, even though they keep hopping the fence to go play with the other toys that they already have in their own backyard. God waits on the porch with lemonade and calls us by name and says, hey, come back, come home. And for a lot of scripture, that's the whole thing. God's on his side of the fence. We, his creatures, are on the other side. At times, God will give us a little manna over the fence, throw us another law, give us some prophets, give us some wisdom, help us make some order out of the chaos of life until Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up in the backyard and he takes out a sledgehammer and he breaks the fence knocks it into a million bajillion little pieces 
brings a new creation into existence. God in Christ rectifies all the wrongs in Eden, opens up a new paradise for us, one even greater than we had in the garden. And believe it or not, what we're about to do, this thing called communion, it is a foretaste of that promise. When we come to the table, when we feast on these ordinary things that are actually extraordinary, we get a taste of what it was like in Eden and what it will be in the kingdom of God because of Jesus. This is what God offers to us. Even though we broke the rules, even though we continue to break the rules, even though we keep thinking we're going to make the world better and it seems to just keep getting worse, God says, come to my table, all you with your burdens. Come to me with all of your sins. I'll give you rest. And it's strange. Because all of us, despite our best intentions, all of our self-righteousness, we are people who, one Friday afternoon, when the sky went dark, as church and state were finally working together, democracy in action, we happened to torture the Son of God to death on the cross. And yet, while on that cross, with arms outstretched, The Son of God does not pronounce damnation or obliteration. Instead, it's an invitation. He says, Rick, Charlie, Barbara, Carlos, come. Come enjoy the party. Come play with me in the yard. It's going to be okay. So I offer this to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen.